Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 296 The Trojan Horse of Meditation. We're joined again by meditation teacher Kenneth Folk and the rest of the Geeks of the Roundtable to discuss the recent Wired article, Enlightenment Engineers. This is part two of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. You know, Kenneth, I'm, I'm thinking about another conversation that we had earlier, and I'm thinking also about the Wisdom 2.0 conference, which, which we went to earlier uh, in the year. And what's so interesting is it seems pretty clear that much of Silicon Valley shares like a certain kind of lens, right? A certain kinds of assumptions. It's a culture, you know, and everyone kind of buys into the culture and there's a power behind that. Obviously it's a culture of innovation. It's a culture of entrepreneurship. And at the same time, uh, I'm sort of thinking of in Star Trek, the Borg, you know, the Borg were this creature who just went around and assimilated everyone into their, into their unit. Uh, and sort of assumed, okay, this is the, the most superior way to be is to be a Borg and to have this collective hive mind. And so they just went around just like whether, whether the autonomous you know, beings wanted to be part of it or not, it didn't matter because they needed to be like assimilated. And I sort of see something similar in this article. It's like, it's like here, here's what we're doing, this meditation thing. We're talking about objectifying the subject. And yet what comes out in the Wired article, it makes it sound like what we're really doing is like teaching meditation so that you can, you know, enhance your productivity and wealth. And I just see the Borg, you know, the Borg of that culture trying to assimilate these certain kinds of things. And I, the question it brings up for me is as meditation teachers or as uh, meditators who care about this stuff, do we, one, sort of say, okay, that meditation is really valuable. And if people engage with it, you know, it's like a Trojan horse, right? If people engage with it, then maybe they'll get involved in this ramification process and they'll start objectifying their own assumptions. So why not just let it be assimilated to a certain degree, kind of like a virus, you know, let it, let, let the virus be uh, injected into the system. But the, now the question is, uh, should we do that? Or should we sort of push back and say, hey, wait a second, like, we're actually dealing with different values here. And let's actually have a conversation or a dialogue about what meditation really is, and how it's changing, and what kinds of values and assumptions are you having that may not be that helpful from this point of view? Like one of our friends, Hokai, he, he often talks about these lenses as uh, sort of revealing certain things, but then concealing other things. And I mean, there's so much, obviously so much power and influence and money in Silicon Valley. And if they're going to start you know, using meditation to help whatever they're doing, should we just sort of give it to them? without asking any questions or should we push back and say, Hey, if you're going to use this, like we're going to have to have a conversation about what this is really about. Um, so that, that's going back to the values question. I, I feel like that's, that's really important. And I know that's not what you're doing, Kenneth, you're, you're working with people, but you're having these kind of conversations. I, I imagine. Right. Well, in this, in the article, it talks about how Luke Nosek, that one of the uh, PayPal founders and now um, venture capitalist very successful in San Francisco. Uh, he sponsored me to come out here to teach um, meditation in San Francisco, and we had a, we had a plan. It, it's a plan that I call "Enlighten the Illuminati." 
And then Luke was totally on board with this, enlighten the Illuminati. If we can help some of the most influential people in the world to get a clue, that's, that's the phrase that comes to mind for me. Now, notice that's based on my, my value systems. I want them to get a clue the way I think I have a clue. Yeah. So there it is. I'll cop to that. But I think if they did, if they could embrace some of the, uh, if they could realize some of what I consider to be the real benefits of meditation. So um, seeing experience as process, which I think is the very, the very essence of awakening, the the um, the compassion and empathy that come that often come uh, as a package with that. And by the way, you can train specifically for compassion and empathy, and that would be a part under the larger umbrella of benefits of meditation. Well, it would be great. I think it would be great if the people who, who run the world love meditation and, and love the benefits of meditation as I do. So this has been kind of um, it's been kind of a stealth move the whole time, because no matter what I say. The, the tech people I talk to think that this is a meditation tool. And I keep telling them, I don't know that it is, but they still think it is. So a productivity tool? Uh, uh, sorry, a productivity tool, right. So, so uh, all I can do is keep saying what I think the real benefits of meditation are and uh, kind of sneak it in there as as i'm being assimilated by the borg (laughs) (laughs) well you know uh, something david loy uh who's a zen teacher asked recently he said if you know if mindfulness is a trojan horse what's troy and i think that's a really good question because i i think we assume that troy is what we've experienced as the benefits but i'm not so sure that that's what they're going to actually find Obviously, like you're saying, you know, there's there's this there is a momentum behind these assumptions that's really powerful, and uh, you know, the Darth Vader move, as Ken Wilber put it, the Darth Vader move is always possible. <laughs> you, know, the, <laughs> you can always use whatever power or force that you've developed in in service of something, uh, and I think meditation in that sense is it's not completely value free, maybe, but but it's not it doesn't have an inherent set of values either, um, obviously. So hey, that's my that's sort of my concern, and and you're right in the heart of dealing with that question. So, so props uh, for you know going right into the uh, to the to the Illuminati uh, den and <laughs> hanging out and partying <laughs> and teaching meditation with the uh, you know the Silicon Valley folks. I think that's, I mean, I think what's cool about it is you're not sort of avoiding the situation and just immediately discounting that whole culture, which I, I've seen. That's a move that a lot of Buddhists uh, and traditionalists kind of make is like, oh, well, they're like evil, the corporation, media, whatever. And so therefore, like, we just aren't going to mess with them. And I think that's also like a weird, that's a weird cop out. I'm listening to this and my heart just feels really tender. Um, It's like, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to go into meditation with the intention that it'll create more productivity. And I I also feel like my motivation for practice has changed so many times throughout, you know, the last 11 years that I have, it's like, I almost have such a deep trust in the process that I feel people will find different avenues for exploration. And I don't know, I guess I just wanted to voice that. And 
going back to the lens, the different lenses with meditation, it's like there almost has to be a fluidity that gets developed with, okay, so maybe I am viewing it through the productivity lens. And then five minutes later, maybe it can switch to the awakening lens. And five minutes later, maybe it could um, shift to this like deeper compassion and wisdom lens. And I don't, I feel like that's one of the things that if we keep going at it through like this lens of productivity, eventually that has to wear itself out. Like, I just don't, I don't see, I mean, we can look at our culture right now and we see the devastation that we're causing through that particular lens. And I hope that, I guess my genuine hope is that the, um, you know, Silicon Valley and all of us can, can really um, even start to examine our lenses. So I'll put that out there. And the other thing I want to voice is that the article was very, and I can hear it some in our language here, is very masculine oriented, which is, you know, it's like the goal driven. And I have that, you know, I, I, I have that, like, I want to be good and I want to succeed. And, and at the same time, with this fluidity of, of taking different perspectives, um, I think there is a opportunity for us to hold both the goal orientation and this more relaxed ebb and flow trusting process of, of meditation. Um, so I just want to put that out there. Mm. And yeah, I, I'm a big fan of like whatever it takes to get to the cushion. And I don't know if this is right or wrong, but like whatever it takes to get you to the cushion. And then from that point, really exploring your motivation and your assumptions and your desire for practice. And I think of that exploratory process is going on. I feel really good about whatever it takes to get there <laughs> because I just feel like there's an inherent kind of process that the, that the person would go through to kind of even go deeper into their own assumptions about why they're on the cushion at all. I mean, my main motivation for practice has always been um, to suffer myself less and for those around me to suffer less, suffer me less. <laughs> um, and that's never changed. That's all. That's been true from from day one it, it's it takes different forms it looks different it feels different but at the end of the day that's always been you know and then if suffer, I don't want to suffer myself anymore and I don't want others to suffer me and and I, yeah it's a question like what do you guys think like is there a right is there a right motivation you know we have yeah. right livelihood and you know all these things is there a right motivation I, I don't know yeah I don't see that there's consensus among either people today or among the great teachers throughout history i don't see any consensus about why you should meditate mm -hmm. so i mean it's it's even a little bit mysterious to me how we even are able to group all of these practices together yeah. i mean mm. it's, it's almost as though we're saying that anything that involves sitting there cross-legged and not talking for a while is all of a, of a piece that's all um should go under some particular heading and I don't know, maybe so. But in the, the in the Upanishads, you had people wanting to get to certain blissful states. That was just mm -hmm. as good as it got. You sit there and bliss out and you know and die. And then you had uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then the Buddha uh, had had his own version of, of the cosmic suicide club. So for him, uh, it's not even good enough to sit there and bliss out. You have to become a Buddha and, and then die, and only then will it be good enough for you because then you won't be suffering anymore, uh, which actually most of us don't relate to that very well at all. 
as far as I can tell nowadays, most people want to uh, have the more of the Mahayana version of this. We want to have a life and relationships and meaningful work, and we want to awaken. Uh, something, uh, something I wanted to follow up on that Emily said, this um, idea of, of masculine and feminine, feminine motivations. So a, a more feminine approach would be, it's not goal-oriented. Just, I don't know, see what happens. And that's, there's, a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of instant freedom in that. Oh, okay, so I can even relax from having to get ahead. That is good. Mm-hmm. And then there's the, the more goal-oriented approach. Uh, how, how much can I master meditation? which would, I suppose, be a more masculine approach. Now, in the article, Vincent and I have talked about this before. In the article, Noah Schachtman, the fellow that wrote it, um, assumed something. He framed it as though the default position going back forever was meditation must never be goal-oriented. But that's not true. So if you look at the earliest texts uh, that we know of in Buddhism, which, which are the Theravada texts, uh, the dying words of the Buddha were said to be strive diligently. It's a very famous saying in, in uh, Southeast Asia, Apamadena Sampadeta in, in Pali. Strive diligently. Because, why? Well, because you have to awaken in this lifetime. That's, that's the gig. So uh, this idea that the, the traditional meditation, traditional Buddhism is all about not being goal-oriented, it turns out not to be true. We see those themes all along the way, uh, theme and counter theme. I saw a bad surfing movie a long time ago, and there, and there was one good scene in the movie. There were some competitive surfers, world-class competitive surfers having their competition uh, on the beach in Hawaii. And then about half a mile from them also surfing were another group of non-competitive surfers. And the non-competitive surfers, who were also, by the way, great surfers, uh, said, those guys, they're, they're kind of immature. You know, they're over there um, strutting and trying to defeat each other. But we're, we're soul, we call ourselves soul surfers. And it was understood that the soul surfers kind of had the moral high ground there. And, and I think that's fine. So there are always going to be some people who just do it for the love of it and in some cases achieve excellence anyway. And there are also going to be people who want to compare and compete and have some metrics for success. And their whole thing is about gaining excellence. I think it's all, it's all good. Yeah, and I just want to make sure that when I, when you know, bringing the feminine and the masculine, I feel like, you know, I keep getting the Zen phrase, not two, but one, not not one, two, you know, so it's, it's like, I, I feel like where we're going as a collective, and this is a broad statement, but um, is some sort of integration between those two approaches, where the Buddha said, you know, strive, get enlightenment, whatever you said, Kenneth, I don't remember exactly, but then and then the other part of the relax, accepting um, freedom is here, readily available in this moment. So I feel like there is a balance between those two. 
that um, can even be seen externally in our culture that we are we are um, exploring the edges of. Um, and I feel like that is a really important um, exploration for our culture um, to go through, especially because we tend to preference um, one side of it. Um, and that's just been tradition. You know, sort of to tie what you guys are talking about back to the original question of values, um, I've been reading a really good book called Leading from the Emerging Future, and it's by a guy named Otto, Otto Schwarmer. And he, uh, I think he's friends with John Kabat-Zinn, and, and there's sort of, sort of an influence from the whole mindfulness movement there. But he talks about, you know, sort of the, the downsides of the infinite growth model in terms of our economy and, and, and the systems that we use. I mean, we're using probably about 1.5 planets worth of resources uh, for the one planet that we have right now. And that seems to just be increasing. And I, I, it seems like the mindset that gives rise to that is the kind of, like you were talking about, M, the, the imbalance or the kind of when someone is just all about growth and development and about their growth and development, mm-hmm. uh, about making more money and, and, and maximizing ROI and, and it's sort of just the single minded focus on sort of pushing one, one or two kind of particular things forward. Well, if we do that, like we've done with like economic growth, um, then the problem occurs because we don't exist in this sort of infinite system where there's an infinite amount of resources. We have to stop at some point and consider how our striving diligently at whatever we're doing is affecting the systems or the broader context that we exist within. You know, at what point, you know, for instance, when I was started off meditating and I was super, super uh, charged about, you know, getting enlightened. And I was talking to you, Kenneth and Daniel Ingram, and you guys were saying, Hey, this is possible that, you know, you don't have to think of this as this esoteric thing that only these old dead dudes achieved, you know, that for me was awesome. And yet, um, Emily can attest that during those first few years, I was sort of alienating her, judging her for not having the same motivation, uh, getting competitive with her, you know, acting like I was more enlightened than her. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, uh, yes, it, it really helped for me to focus. But and yet I was, uh, you know, from the outside, probably just this really obnoxious asshole. <laughs> I mean, so um, it's just really interesting to think about those two those two sides. And as I've learned how to relax more. I think, you know, I've probably become a a little bit more pleasant to be around um, when it comes to talking about meditation and things like that. So just curious about how that individual, how that plays out on an individual level and then also how that plays out on a collective level. Um, Because it seems like we can't completely separate our individual tendencies and patterns and habits from our collective tendencies and patterns and habits that they're sort of tied together and, and maybe even to the point where the, the future of humanity is, is really de- depends on our being able to deal with this on that level mm-hmm. um, so that we can you know, make sure we're not just going off in this infinite growth direction and not considering the whole, which is itself a movement of compassion and care and, and recognizing our limitations, which is also part of that. For me, it's been part of that being able to let go is, is sort of, related to being able to recognize my limitations that maybe it's okay that I don't achieve, you know, the highest state of whatever (laughs) that I can just sort of enjoy my life a little bit too. Anyway, just some thoughts to bounce off what you guys are saying, which really appreciated. Yeah. The whole neti neti, not one, not two. And you see it in Zen as well. It's uh, and it's 
it's quite the paradoxical contradiction where on one hand it's like redouble your efforts and then it's like have few desires but have great ones you know <laughs> so there's this striving 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 but then you know if you are going to strive make sure it's like the most epic striving ever <laughs> and really narrow it down to just one awesome thing <laughs> and go for it <laughs> And at some point you have to step back, right? And see, okay, now that I've strived really hard and I've achieved this Nothing. thing, this, yeah, this no thing, like what, you know, now where do I go from here? Yeah. So for me, that's, that's part of the joke. This, this constant iteration coming back to ramification, always putting myself back at the, at the tippy, tippy top of the tree and realizing uh, all of the things that I thought I had achieved were just they're just dead branches going off to the side and it, the the, the mm. it's what has become compelling is uh being in the in the flow of it for its own sake just i, I want to see what's next nothing else is satisfactory to me mm. stagnation doesn't cut it <laughs> Sorry, i was thinking you you can take any uh any of the the very loftiest of of goals. So even compassion. There's there's a lot to a lot of people talk a lot about compassion, and, and I do too. But uh, that's actually just one of the things that's go that that if you put the paint on the leaf, it's going to go off to the side. If you become obsessed with compassion and stop objectifying the the uh, the subject, oh great! Now I've just uh, created a new identity as this person who's always compassionate that turns out to be a phony deal so everything has to be objectified constantly in order to keep moving mm-hmm. mm. and wh- where are we moving do you think i don't think the moving moving doesn't go anywhere predictable it's kind of movement for movement's sake so just this just this flow because stagnation hurts so you don't think we're kind of moving toward something like some sort of omega point or uh, <laughs> going up in light in the singularity of enlightenment? <laughs> a, a global shift in consciousness? Oh, yeah, right. That, that has never made any sense to me at all. I don't see that we're inevitably going any place like that. I mean, there are going to be, if you look at, sci- at history, there will be cycles. Uh, but the idea that everybody is going to magically become enlightened this has been predicted so many times in history, and it just never happens. The, uh, the pervasive peace, love, dope era doesn't doesn't come. Ramdas had a great quote about this when when asked about the New Age hypothesis that it's going to get better and get great. He said, "Well, at any given moment, there are some people waking up and there's some people falling asleep." Mm. Yeah, I imagine they balance each other out. <laughs> So far. <laughs> I, I feel like this has been a productive conversation. Yes. <laughs> uh, I feel we reached our goal. <laughs> Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology, 
through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.